Well, we're going to spend our time this morning considering one of the most controversial sections of Scripture in the entire Bible. So with this as the focus, let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 9. And as you make your way to the ninth chapter of Romans, I just want to take a moment to, to, to point out here that the content of this chapter has not only caused great confusion throughout the church age, but the confusion has created a great deal of conflict within the church. And, uh, and, and as a result, you know, we've got Arminians arguing with Calvinists and Calvinists arguing with Arminians and, you know, and, and, you know, Molinists trying to jump in somewhere, you know, and so it's, it's just exciting to be a part of all of that. <laughs> but with all this being the case, you know, I can't help but to wonder if Peter, you know, was the Apostle Peter referring to this chapter of the Bible when he described Paul's epistles as, writings that contain things that are difficult to understand. I'm guessing maybe he was thinking about Romans chapter 9. And knowing that Peter warned us about the untaught and unstable people who twist the teachings of Paul even to their own destruction, well, I'd like to consider the way that that people have actually twisted the content of Romans 9. And and I want to consider, you know, what is Paul uh, saying here in this chapter? Well, as we consider uh, some of the ways that people have twisted these uh, verses, uh, you might not know this, but you know there are those who have used Romans nine to teach the doctrine of supersessionism. Supersessionism, and just to be clear, supersessionism is a fancy word which encapsulates the belief that Christians have superseded, or in other words, replaced the Jews as God's chosen people, uh, and and you know, rightly, you know, as, as I think about, you know, church history and, and Christians trying to make sense of everlasting promises to Israel, though there's no Jews, you know, living in the land of Israel, and, 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 and as they're trying to make sense of all of that, you know, I can understand how supersessionism came along, and it's, you know, it's for this reason that supersessionism has, you know, uh, which is also known as replacement theology, because it's it's kind of based on the idea that the church has replaced Israel, and 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 we're going to consider more th- about that doctrine later on in the study today, but but also uh, in next month's study as well, and, and we'll consider, you know, has has the church actually replaced Israel, uh, or is there something else going on here? For now, though, I, I want to also point out here that Romans nine has also been used to teach hard determinism. Uh, which is the idea that you know God has basically determined every action of every person you know throughout all of time and 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 when I consider hard determinism uh, you know uh, i 'm oftentimes left with the question of why does why does God punish me for sins that he forced me to commit you know if hard determinism is true, then God made me do all the things that i 've done. You know, I, I had no choice in the matter. I had no free will in the decision. So then why does he hold me responsible for those decisions? And uh, maybe Paul's trying to address that here in, uh, in this chapter. Uh, Romans 9 has also been used to uh, create Calvinism and hyper-Calvinism, which includes the doctrine of double predestination. You know, some Calvinists believe that God just predetermined the elect for salvation and, the, and then just left, you know, all of the other people just to their own uh, to, to their own demise, while you know the hyper Calvinists come along and say, no, 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 it's double predestination. It's God determined those who would be saved and determined those who would be uh, condemned. And so we're going to consider that this morning. Did the Lord pick some sinners 
for salvation while simultaneously choosing uh, to reject the rest of mankind for the fires of eternal condemnation because they're reprobates. And uh, so we'll consider that in this study as well. There are also those who twist the content of this chapter as they try to convince us that God chose individuals for election according to a plan of particular uh, or particular uh, redemption, and, and, and this in contrast to the corporate election by which God the Father determined a plan of salvation through the federal headship of Jesus Christ. And with all this in mind, we're going to spend our time this morning considering the point that Paul is actually making here in this incredible chapter. And as we take a closer look at these verses, well, I believe that we're going to see how the Lord's predetermined plan of salvation provides every person with the opportunity to be saved by faith and apart from the works of the law. Well, with all this as an introduction, let's begin to, t- to, to look here at Romans chapter 9. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 1. Here Paul declares, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, a conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Now here in these verses we find Paul expressing the grief that he felt as he considered all of the Israelites who were still rejecting their promised Messiah. And I would just first point out that, you know, if you're someone who is struggling with great sorrow and if you're wrestling with continual grief, then you're really in good company because, you know, Paul was a man who experienced grief. Uh, grief is not evidence of, of a weak faith, you know, and sorrow is not evidence of, you know, a, a lack of Christian maturity. And sometimes I would even argue that. You know, sorrow and grief is, is a sign of, of mature belief, you know, because we ought to, you know, grieve over, say, what's going on in Israel right now. We ought to grieve over babies being aborted, you know. We ought to grieve over, you know, what's happening here in America as the rainbow jihad continues to take control of our nation. There are things to grieve over, and Paul certainly believed that. Israel's rejection of their Messiah was something to grieve over, something to be you know, sad about, and so he was. And we even find the, the great extent of Paul's love in the fact that you know, he was willing to exchange his own salvation for the salvation of his kinsmen, his countrymen. He was ready to exchange his own salvation if every Israelite could be saved. I don't know about you, I, I don't have that much love in my heart. <laughs> you know, like in my flesh at least, you know, I, I, I don't know that I would give up my salvation uh, for the salvation of others. And yet here's Paul expressing this incredible love for the Israelites. You know, as, as I think, I don't think it's just hyperbole here, I think he really means it. I think that he's saying, hey, I would, be willing to exchange, I would be willing to go to hell forever if every Israelite could be saved. Now, as we consider the way that Paul is ready here to exchange his salvation for the salvation of every Israelite, not just some, but all of them, we should take a moment to ask, 
Did his desire reflect the doctrine of individual election or corporate election? Does this desire of Paul that he would exchange or sacrifice himself, so to speak, you know, kind of like Jesus sacrificed himself, is Paul's desire to sacrifice himself for all Israelites, is that a reflection of individual election or corporate election? And the answer is corporate election. He's not saying that I would give up my faith, I would give up my salvation for the salvation of specific Israelites that I would choose one by one to the rejection of the reprobates. Nope, he's not saying that. He is engaging in you know, a, 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 an idea of corporate election by saying I would sacrifice myself for the corporate election, the corporate salvation of every Israelite. With that, I want to remind you that the doctrine of individual election is based on the belief that God chose some people for salvation and not others. The doctrine of corporate election is based on the belief that God determined a plan of salvation so that everyone might be saved through the federal headship of Jesus Christ. In other words, God the Father elected Jesus to come and be the savior of mankind so that those who would then believe in him uh, would be saved. So again, you know, is Paul's desire a picture of individual election or corporate election? And the answer is corporate election. And, And if it's true that Paul was being led by the Holy Spirit here, and I believe that he was, I do believe that Paul is being led by the Holy Spirit, you know, with this desire for the salvation of all Israelites, And with that being the case, then, why would the Holy Spirit fill Paul with this sort of desire for corporate election if it's the Lord's plan to save some people through individual election? It wouldn't make any sense for the Holy Spirit to lead him in this way. If it's the Holy Spirit's plan just to pick and choose some for salvation and others for reprobation, well, then why wouldn't the Holy Spirit then lead Paul to say, it's my desire for some Israelites to be saved, or it's my desire for elect Israelites to be saved, or something of that nature. Why would Paul have a desire from the Holy Spirit that isn't in line with the Holy Spirit if the Holy Spirit was actually leading uh, to save people through individual election? Well, we'll, we can wrestle with that as we continue. But uh, to further make my case here, Let's take a closer look at the verses beginning there at verse 3. Here Paul declares, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, uh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Now here in these verses, we find Paul, he's describing the bountiful blessings enjoyed by the children of Israel. And this includes, first of all, the adoption. That's what he points out there in the middle of verse 4, the adoption. This refers to the way that the Lord embraced Israel as his firstborn son. And in this way, the children of Israel became the special people of God, or, or you might say the apple of his eye. And, and so, you know, Paul is saying, hey, you know, the... The Israelites ought not be rejecting their Messiah because they've benefit from this adoption of being the first son of God. 
And after referring to their adoption, Paul then refers to the glory. In this way, he's reminding them of the way in which the glory of God was visibly seen there at the temple. During the days when, when the Holy Spirit manifests uh, you know, the glory of God there in the Holy of Holies, it's like the, the children of Israel saw that. They saw the glory of God. So Paul was encouraging the Israelites to remember that their God was a relational God. He, he wanted to connect with them at the tabernacle of Moses uh, and, and then afterwards you know, there at the temple uh, in, uh, you know, there, there on, on Temple Mount. And so Paul reminds them of the glory that manifests there uh, in the Holy of Holies. Paul also reminds them about the covenants that the Lord made with them. And listen, this includes the Adamic covenant. This includes the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant. God made covenants with them, you know, uh, all, uh, mankind specifically, but, but more directly you know, in the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, God made covenants with them. And, and listen, each of these covenants ultimately pointed to the arrival of the promised Messiah. And so he's saying, hey, just remember that God is not only relational, but he's a God of promise. He's a God of, of making covenants. And, and then after referring to the covenants, Paul drills down into the Mosaic covenant by referring to the giving of the law. This, of course, is a reference to the law that the Lord gave to Moses. And according to Paul, the, the law was given to teach people about their need for our Savior. The law was given as a tutor, a teacher, to bring us to Christ. Furthermore, Paul refers here to the service of God. In other words, Paul was reminding the Israelites about all of the temple sacrifices which were consumed by that supernatural fire of God. They didn't have to manufacture some sort of fire to consume the sacrifices. It was God that was just consuming those burnt offerings on the spot. And listen, those sacrifices were actually shadows which symbolically pointed to the sacrifice of our Savior. So the entire sacrificial system was you know, a placeholder, if you will. Those lambs were placeholders for the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Then beginning at verse 5, Paul points his people to the promises made to the fathers. In this way, he was encouraging his kinsmen to remember the prophetic promises that the Lord made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, who I'll remind you is then renamed Israel. And while these promises included the everlasting inheritance of their land, these prophetic promises also pointed to the ministry of our Messiah. So the promises of God have everything to do with the salvation that's offered through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Finally, it's there in the second half of verse 5 where Paul reminds his readers about the way in which the, the humanity of Christ came from the tribe of Jacob's son Judah. He did this by summing up the prophecies which foretold the day that, uh, that, that Christ would come from the fathers according to the flesh. So there's the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Logos of God who eternally exists. But then there's the humanity of our Messiah who came, according to the flesh, 
through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, down through the lineage of King David. And there in the first century, that promise was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, as we consider all the advantages that the Lord provided for his chosen people, we must not fail to realize that an Israelite can know everything there is to know about the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises that point to our Messiah, and yet still fail to embrace their Christ. And and that was the case there in the first century when Jesus came. You had all these Israelites who had grown up learning these things. They knew all about the adoption. They knew all about the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law. They knew all about the service of God there at the temple and the promises of a coming Messiah. And yet, by and large, the majority of Israelites there in the first century rejected their Messiah. The reason why is given later on in this chapter. We'll study those final verses at the end of this study, but they were basically attempting to achieve their own righteousness through the law rather than trusting in Jesus Christ. And I like the way that the Apostle John describes this. It's John chapter 1, it's verse 17. There John informs us that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And I'll remind you that Moses did not lead the chosen people into the promised land. Joshua did. Think think about the shadow that that presents. Think about the symbol that that reveals. Moses, because he struck the rock twice, was not allowed to lead the people across the Jordan. And in this, we see that the law can only strike the rock. The law, while it is good, it either teaches you that you need Joshua, Yeshua, if you will, or that you're going to be condemned by that very same law. And so the law is given through Moses, but the law can only reveal how far we've fallen short of his perfect standard. Moses, representing the law, could not lead the people across the Jordan, but Joshua did. And of course, Joshua, you know, we find the same name, you know, being translated and transliterated into Jesus Christ later on, right? So, So Jesus and Joshua share the same root name in Hebrew. And so Joshua, leading them across the Jordan into the promised land, that was a shadow, a symbol of what Jesus would do for us through his sacrifice. Knowing that the Israelites were then by and large rejecting Christ Jesus there in the first century, Paul was filled with grief as he considered the state of his own countrymen. And from this, we can see that the Israelites weren't automatically saved because of their bloodline. And there are some people, you know, even people who are masquerading as pastors, you know, who today are teaching that, you know, Israelites are saved because they're Israelites. That they're just automatically saved because they're Jews. And yet Paul said that the gospel message is for the Jew first and then also for the the Greek or the Gentile. And so Israelites aren't 
are not automatically saved because of their bloodline. They're not good with God simply because they came from the lineage of Abraham. And that's what Paul is addressing here in this chapter. You see, the children of Israel here are thinking that, hey, we're okay with God because Abraham is our father. And while it's true that the children of Israel were called the elect of the Lord, this didn't mean that they received the benefits of believing in Jesus. Yeah, they were elect, but for a specific purpose. And while they were claiming Abraham as their father, well, Ishmael could do that too, right? Ishmael could claim Abraham as his father. So what does that argument matter? With this question in mind, let's take some time to consider the point that Paul goes on to make here in Romans chapter 9. Look with me there at verse 6. Here Paul declares, It is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is... Those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Now, here in these verses we find Paul, he's reminding his readers that a person can be a descendant of Israel and yet still miss out on the benefits of believing in Jesus Christ. And to explain what he meant, Paul points us back to the story of Father Abraham and the seed of promise which would come through his wife Sarah and down through the descendants of Israel uh, and all the way to Jesus Christ who is the seed. With this as the focus, I want to consider the way that Paul explains this to the Christians of Galatia. So hold your place here in Romans and let's turn our Bibles to the book of Galatians. I'd like you to turn to Galatians chapter 4. As you make your way to the fourth chapter of Galatians, I should remind you that God promised to provide Abraham with a son, uh, but they were getting on up in age, you know, they were were getting pretty old. And so rather than waiting for the Lord to fulfill his promise, you know, Abraham took matters into his own hand. As a matter of fact, Abraham decided to impregnate his wife's servant, whose name was Hagar, with the permission of his wife Sarah. And yeah, what could go wrong, right? Hagar then gave birth to Abraham's first son. This is Abraham's first son, Ishmael. And then 14 years later, that's when the Lord enabled Abraham to uh, you know, uh, produce the son of promise with his wife, Sarah. And they named the second son of Abraham, Isaac. Now with all this background in mind, let's look here at Galatians chapter 4. It's there at verse 22 where Paul declares, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are, notice, symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar, For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who 
do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. Here in these verses we find Paul reminding his readers about the first two sons of Abraham and his firstborn son Ishmael was born to a bond woman and in this way that he ends up representing the covenant of the law. Abraham's second son Isaac was born to a free woman and in this way Isaac then represents the new covenant which now sets us free from the condemnation of the law. We're freed from the bondage of the law through faith in the promise. In light of this contrast between Ishmael and Isaac, Paul was helping his audience to understand that you can be a son of Abraham, you know, like Ishmael, and miss out on the salvation that's received by faith in the new covenant that Christ Jesus secured for us there on the cross. So, in other words, the Israelites there in the first century who were saying, we're okay with God because we're sons of Abraham... Paul's like, you mean like Ishmael? (laughs) Being a son of Abraham doesn't save you. Are you of the faith of Abraham? That's the real question. The benefits of the new covenant are according to promise, not according to the law. And while the children of Israel thought they were automatically elect because they were the descendants of Abraham, Paul was quick to remind them that salvation is received by those who trust in the seed of Isaac. And who is the seed of Isaac? Jesus Christ. And yes, this seed is passed down through the lineage, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way through David and unto Jesus Christ, right? But, but Jesus ultimately is the seed of promise. In order to further make his case, Paul goes on to remind them about the election of Jacob. And with this as the focus, let's make our way back to Romans chapter 9. I'm going to pick up there beginning at verse 10. Here Paul declares this, he says, And not only this, not, not only this thing about Ishmael and Isaac, Not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated." Now, here in these verses, we find Paul reminding his readers about the the, the sons of Isaac. And I'll remind you that Jacob and Esau were twins. They were twins. And while Esau was born first, it's important to realize that the birthright then belonged, according to the law, to Esau. The birthright which would then carry the seed all the way to Jesus Christ, that birthright that was promised to Abraham, passed down to Isaac, should have by law been passed then to Esau. But rather than seeing this birthright as something to be valued, Esau determined that you know it was worth the value of a bowl of stew. 
As a matter of fact, it's in Genesis chapter 25 there. Moses presents us with the biblical record of, of this event. He tells us, beginning at verse 29, Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore, his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. So Jacob recognizes that the birthright belongs to Esau. And he sees this as an opportunity to swindle Esau out of the birthright. You see, Jacob wasn't really a great guy. He's not engaging in works of righteousness. No, he's trying to swindle his brother out of his birthright. And Esau's down with it. He says, look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? We've all been there. Hangry. You know, just ready to do anything for a Carter burger at Culver's. But then Jacob says, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. And he ate and drank and arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Esau exchanged his birthright for a bowl of stew and some bread. And hey, who doesn't like bread? But is it worth the birthright? In this way, the older brother became the servant of the younger, just as God had promised prior to the day of their birth. The older brother became the servant of the younger because Jacob acquired the birthright. Well, I want to remind you again that you know it was the law that provided the firstborn son with the birthright. The birthright goes to the firstborn son according to the law. But it was the election of the Lord that allowed Jacob to receive the birthright apart from the works of the law. He's the secondborn son, but then ends up with the birthright according to election. And it's for this reason that Paul parenthetically presents this truth there in verse 11. Look at in Romans 9, 11. There again he says, For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, before they've done anything at all, right? It's that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. In other words, the blessings of the birthright aren't embraced or received by works. The blessings of the birthright aren't passed down through law. Instead, the blessing of the birthright is embraced by faith according to the plan of him who calls, and it's according to this plan of election. And in order to further grasp Paul's point here, let's consider the way that he quotes the prophecy that's actually found in Malachi. He quotes this prophecy in verse 13, and, and, and it's there where he declares this. He says, "...as it is written..." Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. At first glance, this verse appears to present us with a biblical basis for believing in the doctrine of particular redemption. And just to be clear again, particular redemption, it's based on the belief that Jesus has particular individuals in mind when he died on the cross for the sins of the elect. That when he died on the cross, he wasn't dying for the sins of the whole world, but rather he was dying 
effectively for those who were chosen through individual election before the foundations of the world. And, and then the argument is based on, well, you know, just like God chose Jacob and, you know, allowed Esau to remain a reprobate. Well, in the same way, you know, each person throughout all of history is chosen in that same individual way. This verse here in verse 13 has actually been used as, as the basis uh, for the doctrine of double predestination as well. And, and while some Calvinists will say that, no, no, God just predetermines some to, you know, to salvation and then just leaves the rest to themselves, right? So he'll never regenerate them, so they'll never have faith in Jesus Christ. They're just left to their own sinful state, and as a result, they're reprobates and you know, damned forever. So while some Calvinists embrace that position... There are others who only embrace four points of Calvinism, and we call them confused. But, uh, <laughs> but, but seriously, you know, there, there's then the hyper-Calvinist position that you know, includes the idea that God engages in double predestination, which is that he actively predetermines who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. So is that what this verse is saying here? And as we consider this interpretation of verse 13 there, I'd like to suggest that there might be a better way to understand the point that Paul is making here. First of all, we should ask, was Paul using Jacob and Esau as evidence of particular redemption? In other words, does God limit atonement for particular individuals by arbitrarily choosing some for salvation and others for condemnation? And with this question in mind, it's important for us to understand uh, first of all, the doctrine of imputation. And just to be clear, uh, it's important to remember that the sin of Adam has been imputed. And, and when I talk about the doctrine of imputation, this begins with the imputation of Adam's sin to all of his progeny. Adam sinned there in the garden. And there God allowed him to represent us federally. And it's for this reason that the sin of Adam has been passed down to all of the descendants of Adam and Eve, which is all of us. So his sin is imputed to all of us, and you might think, well, that's unfair. And yet, listen, you would have sinned also. So, you know, God realizing that everyone is eventually going to sin sometime in their life, he went ahead and allowed Adam to represent us at the federal level and then impute his sin down to the rest of us so that he could then reverse that curse through the federal headship of Jesus Christ. You see, the Lord Jesus acted as our federal head as well there on the cross so that those who trust in him can receive the imputation of his righteousness. This was precisely the point that Paul was making in Romans chapter 5. It's verse 18. There in Romans 5, verse 18, he declares, As through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. Who's that referring to? Adam. Through Adam's offense. Through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, think about those two words, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. According to Paul there, the imputation of Adam's sin has affected every single one of us, resulting in condemnation. And just as, or even so, 
even like the, the sin of Adam ended up affecting every single person, well, the righteousness of Jesus Christ has also been provided now as a free gift to how many people? To all men. That's what Paul says. Listen to it again. As through one man's offense, judgment came to how many men? All men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to how many men? All men, resulting in justification of life. Now, this is not to suggest that all men will be saved. This is not to suggest that all people will benefit from what Jesus accomplished there on the cross. And the reason I say this is because there are still some who despise the birthright. And yet we can rejoice in knowing that the free gift has been extended to all people. And as a result, those who will answer the call of Christ will receive the imputation of his righteousness resulting in the justification of life. And in order to further make my case, I want to consider the point that the Apostle John made. It's in 1 John chapter 2. It's in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, where John declares this. He says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation, or in other words, atoning sacrifice. He is the propitiation for our sins, talking to the church, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. According to John, Jesus not only offered himself as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of believers, but he also offered himself as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, which is in contrast to the church. That being the case, I can assure you that the doctrine of limited atonement, which is that the idea that when Jesus died on the cross, he was only offering an atoning sacrifice for this specific elect group of people, the Jacobs and not the Esau's. And yet John says, no, limited atonement is not a biblical doctrine. Limited atonement is not a biblical doctrine. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Now listen, if it's true that the doctrine of limited atonement is unbiblical, then it only stands to reason that the doctrine of particular redemption is also unbiblical. And if the doctrine of particular redemption is also unbiblical, then it only stands to reason that the doctrine of double predestination, it's unbiblical. This is not the point then that Paul is making here. Listen, if Jesus died for the sins of the whole world so that every sinner might be saved according to the corporate election you know, that, that he secures, well, then we have to reject this idea that there is particular redemption you know, where Jesus you know, chooses some for salvation and rejects others to eternal reprobation. And as Adam represented us there in the Garden of Eden, We can rejoice in knowing that Jesus represented us there on the cross so that those who believe in him will then benefit from his atoning sacrifice. In this way, God made salvation available to every sinner through the predetermined election of Jesus Christ, who is the elect one. And now those who trust in the elect one enter into the corporate election of Christ Jesus. 
The Apostle Peter confirms this in 1 Peter chapter 2. It's the second half of verse 6. There he declares, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Everyone who trusts in the elect one enters into the corporate election of Christ Jesus. And with all this being the case, we should take a moment to ask, what in the world then did the Lord mean? What what was the Lord saying when he told the prophet Malachi, or Malachi if you're Italian, what was the Lord saying when he told Malachi that he loved Jacob but hated Esau? Why did Paul then use this section of Scripture from Malachi chapter 1 as he addressed the reason for why so many Israelites were rejecting their Messiah? And with all this in mind, it's important to understand the context of the original passage. If you'd like, you can turn with me to Malachi chapter 1. It's the last book of the Old Testament, and really it's the last time that the Lord spoke to the Israelites until John the Baptist. And it's here in Malachi chapter 1 where the Lord is sending the prophet Malachi to rebuke the Israelites. He didn't send Malachi to rebuke the Edomites. He sent Malachi to rebuke the Israelites for the way that they were dishonoring his name. And it's here in the beginning of Malachi, it's chapter 1 verse 1, here the prophet Malachi presents the word of the Lord. He says, The burden of the word of the Lord to Edom. Oh, wait, nope, sorry. To Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Now, is he talking to Jacob? No, Jacob, Jacob's gone. These are the descendants of Jacob or the descendants of Israel, right? He says, I have loved you says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Now from this, we can see here that this reference to Jacob and Esau wasn't about Jacob and Esau. When we consider the original context, the Lord's not talking about individuals. He's not talking about the individual named Jacob and the individual named Esau. He's talking about their descendants. And when Malachi assures the people of Israel that the Lord loved Jacob, he's reminding them of the way that the Lord had a a, a blessed relationship with Jacob, whom he renames Israel. But this relationship also then moves forward through the the, the descendants or the children of Israel. And these blessings continue to be poured out upon the descendants of Jacob because of the birthright that was given to Abraham, passed down to Isaac, and then to Jacob, and then to the descendants of Jacob. And when the prophet Malachi refers to the way in which the Lord hated Esau, he's referring to the way that the descendants of Esau went on to uh, be rejected in, in, in an earthly sense, as they are sent to dwell in the desert, which was inhabited by the jackals of the wilderness. And, and 
one reason why is because Esau rejected the birthright. With all this, it's important to realize that this passage, the original verse that Paul is quoting, it's not about two individuals, but rather it's about two nations. And I like the way that C. Norman Bartley explains it. He, he puts it like this. He says, the, the reference is not to the individual, but to the nations descended from them. Now you might argue, well, nations are made up of a bunch of individuals, right? I mean, that's stretching the limits of, of what's going on here. We're talking about nations. Jacob and Esau are representatives or are acting as federal heads over their descendants. And so when God says, I love Jacob and hate Esau, God's saying he's referring to the nations that come from them. It's also important to, to note here that the prophet Malachi, he, well, he goes on to talk about the problems going on there in Edom and whatnot, but then if we skip down to verse 6, we really see the, the, the reason for this rebuke and, and for why the Lord is reminding the descendants of Israel of, of the point of his love for Jacob and, and how disappointed he is that these people who had received his great love are then turning away from him. And with that, look with me here at Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. Here the Lord goes on to rebuke them through Malachi as he says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? To you priests who despise my name, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? Well, verse 7. You offered defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible, and when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? They were offering you know, blind animals as sacrifices. So he says that when you offer blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? As we take a closer look at this context, we can see here that the Lord was less concerned about Jacob and Esau as individuals because they're long gone. He's more concerned about the fact that the children of Israel were beginning to despise his holy name, and it's for this reason that he reminds them about the merciful love that he had bestowed upon them so that they might then turn around and repent and return to him. And with all this in mind, it seems to me that Paul here is quoting this passage from the prophet Malachi in order to remind his readers that a person can belong to the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and yet still be guilty of rejecting the gracious love of the Lord. You can be called elect of the Lord and yet still reject his love. 
A person can belong to the election of Jacob and yet still despise the birthright just like Esau. And at the same time, it's also important for us to remember that the election of Jacob took place even before the twins were born. And so so the the statement, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated, uh, was given to the descendants much, much later. But then it's still a statement that was made before the twins were born. With that, I want to look again here at Romans chapter 9. Look with me beginning at verse 11. Here again, in verse 11, Paul declares parenthetically, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, as we consider this election that took place before the twins were even born, we should take a moment to ask, did the Lord literally hate Esau? You know, in, in, in the process of election here, did the Lord literally hate Esau, or was the Lord speaking idiomatically to the descendants of Israel? Now, with this question in mind, we should consider the way that, that Jesus uses the same Greek word that's rendered hate here. It's actually in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. There the Lord declares, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Interesting. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. What in the world is Jesus saying here? Do you have to be a sadomasochist to become a Christian? <laughs> I mean, do you have to literally hate yourself? Do you have to you know, engage in self-flagellation and these sorts of things? Of course, I've been engaging in self-flagellation for years, but that's another story. But what in the world does Jesus mean here? Does he expect us to hate our parents just to become his disciples? How do we square this statement, you better hate your family, you better hate yourself, How do we square that with the command to then love our enemies? I'll remind you, it's in Matthew chapter 5 where the Lord Jesus declares, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes uh, his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, Now think about this for a second. How can the Lord command us to love our enemies while simultaneously, you know, uh, requiring us to hate our family. How do we square that? And why would the Lord require us to love our enemies if he sets the example of hating Esau? If he hates Esau in, in this sense, why wouldn't he say, hate your enemies like I hate Esau? It's a bit paradoxical, almost seemingly contradictory. 
Well, in order to wrap our minds around this conundrum, let's consider the way that Criswell explains this. He declares this, Now that word, hate, is not like we use the word hate, malicious, villainous attitude. But it means, like it says in the Bible, if a man come after me and hate not his father or mother or brother or sister, he is not worthy of me. And then he says, hate in the sense that we love God more than we love anyone else. As it is written in Malachi 1, verses 2 and 3, where God says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I love less. More simply put, you know, God isn't calling us to hate our parents. No, instead he's calling us to love him so much more that the love we have for our parents by comparison could be seen as hate. And in the same way, God loved Jacob so much that his love for Esau could actually comparably be seen as hate. And remember, the context of Malachi chapter 1 wasn't about Jacob and Esau as individuals. So, you know, we can go back into the Old Testament and see the many ways that God did bless Esau and the Edomites. They were recipients of blessings, but by comparison of what Jacob and his descendants received, the love that he had for Jacob comparably made it seem as if he hated the Edomites. And as we consider the way that Malachi chapter 1 wasn't about individuals, namely Jacob and Esau, but rather it was about their descendants, therefore when Paul quotes Malachi chapter 1, he has that context in mind because that was the way that Jewish leaders taught. When they quoted a, a snippet from an Old Testament passage, they had the whole context in mind. Therefore, Paul wasn't referring to the election of individuals because the context from Malachi 1 doesn't lend itself to that. Therefore, he must have been referring to the corporate election, the same sort of corporate election that he expressed as he said, I would sacrifice myself for all of Israel not some individually. Remember, the promised seed of our Savior didn't come through the lineage of Abraham's first son, Ishmael, according to the law, and that's important for us to keep in mind. The promised seed of our Savior did not come from the lineage of Abraham's first son, Ishmael, according to the law. The promised seed came through the lineage of Abraham's second son, Isaac, according to the election of grace. And the promised seed of our Savior didn't come through the lineage of Isaac's first son, Esau, according to the law. But instead, the promised seed came through the lineage of Isaac's second son, Jacob, which is according to the election of grace. And to sum all of this up with simplicity, listen, the blessing of the birthright that came through Isaac and Jacob, both second sons, this Blessing of the birthright is not received through the works of the law. You can't work your way into the good graces of God. It's received by faith in the finished work of the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jesus Christ. 
And it's for this reason that the legalistic Israelites there in the first century, they were rejecting the gospel message that Paul was preaching. And the reason why? Well, Paul explains it at the end of this chapter. Now, again, we're going to study the second half of this chapter, including these verses, next month. But for now, I just want to skip ahead and give you the answer sheet. It's found there beginning in Romans 9, verse 30. Here, Paul goes on to ask those who were taking issue with his gospel message He says in verse 30, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. And remember, Peter includes the word elect there. But Paul says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Paul helping his audience to understand that most of the Israelites there in the first century, they failed to embrace the election of grace. And the reason why is because they were pursuing their own righteousness through the works of the law. They thought that that, that somehow through all of their good works, they could appease God, that they could provide their own atonement through good works. And in contrast to this, the Gentiles came along and just simply believed in Jesus and ended up receiving the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And the reason why is because they received it by faith in the finished work of our Savior Jesus Christ. And while there are those who insist that the Gentiles then replaced or superseded Israel, I can assure you that this is not the case at all, and we'll consider more about that next month. We're going to consider more about you know, this when we study the next chapter, and, 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 but for now, I'd like to sum it all up. If, if I'm able to sum up the first half of this incredible chapter, I want to remind you that this chapter does not present us with the doctrine of particular redemption resulting in double predestination, but instead, God has provided us with corporate election. God didn't elect some people for salvation while leaving others in a state of everlasting reprobation. Instead, this chapter provides us with a a basis for believing in the corporate election, which was provided through the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, according to the predetermined election of the elect one, Jesus Christ. And as a result, those who choose to reject Jesus, well, they're going to stumble over the stumbling stone of our Savior as they reject the elect one. And those who believe on him will not be put to shame as they embrace the election of grace by faith in the one who was elected to become our Savior. With that, uh, we're going to wrap it up there and come back to the rest of this uh, chapter next month as we consider Moses and Pharaoh and hardening and all those important things. But uh, for now, uh, we're going to wrap up this study and and turn it over to a time of cute and ape. Is that that right? Yeah. (laughs) So with that, I'm sure I've answered all the questions, right? Good. I'm going to go to the bathroom. No, seriously, what, you know, let's, let's take some time to engage in, uh, in some discussion, some Q&A. What, uh, what, what questions come to mind as we consider the content of the first half uh, of this chapter?